Father, we are reminded afresh from what we just sang that uh, you have not called us to be your counselors, and Lord, we are not in a position to be your questioners. Uh, you are the potter, and we are the clay, and so Father, we come again to bow before you as our king. You are our authority. We don't stand in judgment over you, but you are the one who judges us, and so Father, I pray that we would see ourselves this morning in light of your revelation, Lord, that you would bring conviction where it's needed, that you would help us see the glory of Christ who died in our place, who has by grace removed our sin and gives us a right standing. And so I pray that Christ will be exalted in everything that happens this morning, and I pray this in his great name. Amen. Which is go and grab your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We are very quickly drawing an end, uh, drawing toward an end to this study in Ecclesiastes. We've been in this book for several months. Lord willing, uh, we have three weeks, after today, three weeks left in our study of, of this book. And we're in a section of Ecclesiastes right now that is all about wisdom. And I've tried to define wisdom for you in several different ways over the last few weeks. One way to say it is that wisdom is knowing how to live your life in the light of God's revelation. So maybe think of it in terms of Psalm 119.105. You remember that's where the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, wisdom is living in the light of God's revelation. Another way I've tried to define it is wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. And you hear the word that keeps getting repeated there, right? Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way. And wisdom is living in the light of God's revelation. So everything with wisdom begins and ends with my life being rightly aligned with and rightly submitted to God. Okay, that's why Solomon says elsewhere that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm God's creation. I was made by Him and for Him and so my life only makes sense lived in light of God. So the fear of God is the essence of wisdom. Well, what if we flip that? If the fear of God is the essence of wisdom, what then would be the essence of foolishness? I was thinking about it this weekend. If you're doing the Bible reading plan that we're following right now as a church, we just read this weekend Psalm 13 through 15. Did anybody read that this weekend? And did you notice how Psalm 14 begins? Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So if the fear of God is the essence of wisdom, what is the essence of folly? The fool says there is no God. Now that, that might be an outright denial of God, or it might just be a, a practical rejection of God's authority. And what I mean by that is the essence of foolishness can be the person, like an atheist who just denies that God exists, or foolishness can show up in the life of a nominal Christian who just practically lives as if God doesn't matter. So the Psalm 14.1 person isn't just the person who intellectually denies God, it can also be the person who lives as if there's no accountability to God. 
So over the, the path of wisdom, you could stamp the words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And over the path of folly, you could stamp the words, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that is foolishness. That is the essence of foolishness because, as I keep saying, we were designed for God. We were hardwired to worship God. So that God designed our world so that it's constantly screaming to us, there's a great God. God hardwired our hearts so that we have a conscience. We sense right and wrong. We sense that there's some sort of moral law. And God designed it that way so that we'll recognize there's a moral lawgiver. We have this sense in the human heart that we love to marvel at great things. Thousands of people travel every year just to stand there and marvel at the Grand Canyon. Thousands of people travel every year just to stand there in awe at Niagara Falls. So we were designed so that we want to praise great things. And that's because we were ultimately designed to praise a great God. So we're hardwired toward God to know Him and to worship Him. And so to deny that or to live at odds with that, everything in our lives starts going haywire. There's an article that I have referred you to before but describes this so well. It's an article that was written years ago by a professor at the University of Texas. And he was a brilliant guy. He, for a, a long period in his life, was an avowed atheist. He denied God, and he had later come to faith in Christ. And in this article that he wrote, he described how hard it was for him to be an atheist, how hard it was to deny what seemed to have been hardwired inside of him. Listen to what he wrote. It's one of my favorite descriptions of it. He wrote, when some people flee from God, they rob and kill. When others flee from God, they do a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex. When I fled from God, I didn't do any of those things. My way of fleeing was to get stupid. Though it always comes as a surprise to intellectuals, there are some forms of stupidity that one must be highly intelligent and educated to achieve. You cannot imagine what a person has to do to himself to go on believing such nonsense. St. Paul said that the knowledge of God's law is written in our hearts, our conscience is also bearing witness. These things constitute the deep structures of our minds. That means that so long as we have minds, we can't not know them. I was unusually determined not to know them. Therefore, I had to destroy my mind. Visualize a man opening up the access panels of his mind and pulling out all the components that have God's image stamped on them. The problem is they all have God's image stamped on them. So the man can never stop. No matter how many he pulls out, there are still more to pull. I was that man. That's a great description of what we're talking about. We are hardwired to know God and to worship God. We're hardwired to recognize that there is a great God. So for a person to deny that, it's like you have to open up the hard drive of your mind and start ripping out all the wires that have God's image stamped on them. And of course, the problem with that is everything about us has the image of God stamped on it. So you find yourself constantly pulling out wires and trying to rewire the system. And Solomon's point is that is the path of foolishness. So what he's doing in this section of, of Ecclesiastes is he's laying out before us these two paths, wisdom and folly, 
And he's describing for us what those two paths look like. And he's going to do it for us this morning. He's going to describe those two paths this morning in terms of our speech. In other words, Solomon is going to say that there's a certain way that people speak who live their lives in the fear of God. And there's a certain way that people speak who live their lives as if there is no God. And so it's going to be, in fact, let me get at it this way. Just about every piece of wisdom literature in the Bible at some point comes to the issue of our speech. Why do you think that is? Why do you think about just about every time the Bible wants to call us to wisdom and wants to give us evidence for how to know if we're living wisely or not, Almost every time the Bible wants to deal with that issue, it points us to how we talk. Because our speech is one of the best barometers for where we are when it comes to godly wisdom. And so you're going to see Solomon press deeply into this issue this morning. There there are really two issues that he's going to touch on. Solomon's going to say that you you can discern the wisdom in a group of people by their speech And you can determine the wisdom in people by their leadership. So let's read the passage. If you're in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we studied the first half of this last week. And we're going to pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 12. Solomon writes, The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, But the lips of a fool fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them. For they do not even know how to go to the city. And here comes the second part. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice. And a bird in flight may tell the matter. Now we're going to look at this under two broad points. Here's the first one. Number one, he tells us how to evaluate our words. First half is about evaluating our words. Did you notice how he starts in verse 12? He sets up a contrast. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. So what marks the speech of a wise man or woman? It says it's gracious, or your translation could say, the words of a wise man are grace. It's like a wise man's words just drip grace. His words, her words are helpful. They speak words that are insightful. A wise person knows what to say, and they know when to say it, and they know how to say it. Some of your translations will word it that the words of a wise man win him favor. 
And if that's the right translation, it could be the idea that when a wise person speaks, they speak in such a way that it draws out respect from other people. Maybe the New Testament parallel to this would be Colossians chapter 4. Listen to Colossians chapter 4 verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And what I like about that is notice again, just like in the Old Testament, we're told that our words are to be gracious, but this reminds us that gracious words are not always sugary sweet words. Because Paul says in in, uh, Colossians that our words are also to be seasoned with salt, meaning that wise people speak forthrightly, wise people speak honestly, they speak in a way that highlights and shines a light on the path of wisdom, they speak in a way that warns people away from the path of folly, these are words that edify. A wise person speaks words that build up, but what about the fool? How does he summarize the speech of a fool? He says, the words of a fool swallow him up. And it's really the idea that a fool's words devour. Now what's interesting about this verse is normally when the Bible talks about the damage done by foolish words, it talks about it in terms of the damage foolish words do to others. Right? So if I speak foolishly, my words damage the people around me. If I speak like a fool, I don't build up people, I tear down people. Foolish words destroy others. But that's not the point Solomon makes here. Did you notice how he says it? He says that the words of a fool swallow him up. So Solomon's point here isn't just that foolish words destroy the hearers. What's the point he's making? Foolish words destroy the speaker. You know, we sometimes say, that we have to eat our words. We say something we shouldn't, you have to eat your words. Well, what Solomon is saying here is it's also true that our words can eat us. So when we speak foolishly, it's like every foolish word I speak, uh, a plume of termites comes flying out my mouth that turn around and start eating away at my own life. So with our foolish words, we destroy ourselves. I mean, don't you see this all the time? It's with our own words that we destroy our own marriages. It's with our words we destroy our families. It's with our words we destroy our own churches. It's with our words we destroy our own reputations. It's our own words spoken foolishly that devour us. And so whereas the words of a wise person build up, Solomon is saying that the words of a fool destroy. Do you know why this is such a hard issue for us, speech? And it is for all of us. I mean, I've been studying this passage all week, so I've had the thought of my words being right at the front of my mind, and yet I've still struggled with my words this week. Why do we struggle so much? And one of the reasons why we struggle with our words so much is because we speak so many of them, right? We talk all the time. Do you know that they say that in the average person's lifespan, So this would apply to you. You will end up speaking 13 years of your life. So if you live an average lifespan, an entire 13 years, day and night of your life will be spent talking. If the words that the average person speaks every day were printed out, you on an average day speak a 50-page printed book. 
I mean, we talk all the time. And our words have massive power. In a lot of ways, the direction of my life and the impact of my life will be determined by my words. Well, then if our words are such a problem, I should just stop speaking. I mean, have you ever heard, have you ever heard the saying that we rarely make a mistake in silence? That's true, that most of the mistakes I make, I make with my mouth open. When I don't speak, I don't gossip. When I don't speak, I don't lie. When I don't speak, I don't insult. When I don't speak, I don't instigate. So let's just be quiet and we'll fulfill this command, right? Not, not quite. Because the Bible not only commands me not to speak foolish words, the Bible also commands me to speak wise words. So I can sin against God by what I say, and I can sin against God by what I don't say. Every one of us in here has been in a situation before when we felt we knew we should speak up about something, right? Somebody was misrepresenting the truth. Somebody's character was being assassinated right in front of us. Gossip was going on and we knew we should say something and stop it. We should save that person's reputation who was being slandered. We should correct something that was just said wrongly and yet we stay quiet. Well, that's another sin of the speech, right? So we sin not only by what we say, but by what we fail to say. So sins of the tongue are one of the biggest struggles of life. And they're one of the most telling areas of our life. Probably the closest thing to wisdom literature you get in the New Testament is the book of James. The the whole theme of James is that where there is real saving faith in Jesus, it always produces fruit. That's James in a nutshell. That if you have a real saving faith in Christ, it will produce tangible works, tangible fruit. So what is the tangible fruit that faith produces? Well, one of the main areas that James zeroes in on is our speech. And James wants us to know that our speech is one of the most telling areas of where we stand spiritually. I'm going to read just a few verses. It would do us well to read the entirety of James chapter 3 this morning. But we don't have time to cover it all. But listen to just a few verses. James chapter 3, verse 2. James says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Do you see what James is saying? James says, If anyone doesn't stumble in their speech... You're perfect. The word perfect means mature. So it's like James is saying, here's the sign of your real spiritual maturity. The way you really know how spiritually mature you are is not how long you've professed to be a Christian. It's not even how long you've been a member or how often you attend a church service. If you are not being sanctified in your speech, you are not maturing as a Christian. And James even says it the other way. James says the man who is able to control his speech can control his whole body. It's like James is saying this is the hardest area to rein in. If by God's grace you're able to rein in your tongue, there's no area of your life that you won't be able to rein in. I mean the picture the Bible paints is almost the idea that you and I have this monster that we're fighting every day. And the monster isn't, it's not out there somewhere. 
The monster isn't the husband or wife who wakes up on the other side of the bed. The monster you're fighting every day is right here. It's why so often when the Bible wants to give an illustration of just how fallen humanity is, when the Bible wants to hold up exhibit A of the sinfulness of mankind, do you know where the Bible points? It points to our words. Maybe the best example is in Romans. You know Romans 3 where Paul quotes from Psalms to make the point that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But I want you to notice the illustration he gives of that. This is Romans 3, picking up in verse 10. Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. And just in case you're tempted to go, isn't that an overstatement, Paul, to say that we're all sinful, to say that none of us does good? Well, Paul answers that by going, okay, you want an example of how sinful you all are? Here's the example. Pick up in the next verse. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. What's, what's exhibit A that God points to to show just how fallen we are? God points to our speech. And so one of the things that the Bible regularly urges us to do is to recognize what a problematic area this is. And, and I would add, the real problem we have isn't with our tongue. Speech problems aren't ultimately tongue problems. Speech problems are ultimately heart problems, right? You remember how Jesus said it? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the, how's that verse go? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So my mouth is just a vent of my heart. So then why is it that angry, spiteful, vengeful words come out of my mouth? Well, Jesus' answer would be because I have an angry, spiteful, vengeful heart. Nothing comes out of my mouth that isn't first in my heart. So if my speech is going to change, what's the Bible going to say has to change first? The only way my speech changes is for, first for my heart to change. So, number one, that would mean I need to be born again. I need, I need Jesus, by grace, to make me new. This is what happens at salvation. It's where God, in grace, changes my heart. So I see my sin as the empty thing that it is that deserves the curse of God. And I see Jesus as the treasure. He's the one who took my sins on his shoulders, including the sins I've had of speech. And he took the punishment for it and rose from the dead. And so in him I've forgiven and in him I'm changed. So the first thing I need is my heart changed through faith in Christ, but then becoming a Christian doesn't bring the battle with your speech to an end, does it? In fact, that's really when the battle begins. Because now that I'm a Christian, I have a new nature. I want to please God. I want to please God with the things that I say, but there's now this constant war that's raging with my fallen heart. And our words have massive power. That's what, that's what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes. Our words have the power to swallow us up. Our words have the power to devour our own lives. And maybe one of the keys to controlling our tongues as Christians 
is to just live in the reality of how potentially destructive our words are. So think of it this way. One of the key, one of the key attributes for being a successful lying trainer, one of the key attributes for being a successful grizzly bear trainer is you have to constantly live with the awareness that if you let your guard down at any second, that animal is liable to turn on you and tear you apart, right? So if you're, if you're training deadly lines for the circus, you better never let your guard down because the minute you become haphazard with it, you're in trouble. Well, that's a good way to think about our speech. It's like we're walking around with a torch in the middle of a dynamite factory. We're, we're walking around with an envelope full of anthrax in the middle of a crowd of people. The minute we get careless with our words, we have the potential of doing massive damage. Massive damage to our kids, to our marriage, to our friendships, to our church. And so look at what he says. Back to Ecclesiastes 10. Look at what he says foolish speech leads to. Verse 13, he says, The words of his mouth, this is the fool, the words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. This is, this is describing the trajectory of a fool's words. So a fool starts by speaking foolishness, and then it's only downhill from there. The longer a fool speaks, the worse it gets. It goes from foolishness to raving or evil madness. So the more a fool talks, the worse it gets. The more a fool talks, the more destructive his words get. The more a fool talks, the more perverse his words get. So you get the downhill slide it's describing. What's the only way that downhill slide is interrupted? The Bible's word is repentance. The only way this slide in my life is interrupted is through repentance. That means I own up to God about where I am. I call my sin what it is. My sins of speech are not some little picadillo that don't matter. My sins of speech are an affront to God. And I agree with God and confess to God and look for forgiveness in Christ. But until that happens, the slide continues. And it goes from foolishness to madness. Verse 14. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be, like, what will be after him? The point here is, here is, in spite of the damage that a fool's words do, in spite of the fact that the more a fool talks, the more he destroys his own life, it's like he just can't stop. So one of the key marks that I might be a fool is I talk too much. Solomon says the fool multiplies words. Here's the danger of that. Listen to Proverbs 10, 19. Listen to what Solomon writes there. He says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. And the last two phrases in verse 14 in Ecclesiastes 10, it's making the point that a fool multiplies words even though a fool doesn't know what he's talking about. A fool, has, a fool feels like he has to give his input on everything whether he knows that topic or not. A fool's always going to make sure you get his two cents. A fool's always going to make sure you know what's on his mind. That's the idea. A fool just keeps 
multiplying words. Verse 15. Oh, and let me say this before I look at verse 15. So, so if my problem is I just keep talking, guess what that leads to? Because a fool multiplies words, one of the other things that goes hand in hand with that is a fool can't receive correction. I'm, I'm so busy talking, I don't have time to listen to what anybody has to say. I'm so busy talking that the minute you start talking in the conversation, I'm just waiting for you to breathe. Because the minute you breathe, I'm going to regain control of the conversation. And so fools shield themselves off from ever being corrected. Have you ever tried to give correction to somebody who is a fool? Who refuses to ever hear anything? They're just too busy talking. Years ago, I had a lady who came by my office a couple times under the idea that she needed counsel on some things going on in her life. And she would come, and this was only lasted for a couple sessions. She would come and she would just talk and talk about this problem, that problem, how this isn't right, and how that isn't right. And the minute that I would try to interject, the minute I would try to refer to a scripture that kind of sheds light on that topic or might help her know how to navigate what was going on in her marriage or might help her know how to navigate this struggle that was going on with her friends, the minute I would start talking, her eyes would just immediately gloss over. You could almost see the switch go off in her brain. She was not interested in hearing anything. She just wanted to talk. That, that's the mark of a fool. Fools just want to, they just want to regurgitate whatever is on their mind. They have no willingness or interest in ever being corrected. What do you mean I should be corrected? I can never be wrong. So fools just keep talking. Verse 15, I think this is still about words. The labor of fools, I think it's talking about the labor of fools speaking. The labor of fools wearies them. For they do not even know how to go to the city. The words of a fool are wearisome. Fools will talk you to death. But Solomon is saying there's no wisdom in it. They will weary you. A fool will weary you with their long explanations and descriptions. But they can't even give you accurate directions for how to get to the city. This is kind of a blanket statement of foolishness where Solomon's saying they'll give you, but their, their explanation is going to be so long-winded and so drawn out and so convoluted, they couldn't give you directions from your pew to the bathroom in the foyer. It's just weariness. You might say they talk and they talk, but they don't even have the good sense to come in out of the rain. Now, the, the point here is not that fools are stupid. You could, you could have a PhD after your name. You could have a high paying job. You could have a super high IQ and still be a fool. Because what Solomon's talking about here is not about how much you know. It's about whether or not you really know God. If your life is not lived under God, your words will not be held in check by the fear of God. So one of the marks that I'm not living under the fear of God is there's no responsibility for my words. I just vent. I just speak with no wisdom. Well, Solomon is saying that is the mark of foolishness. So what do your words say about the pathway that you're on? Would your words indicate that you're on the path of wisdom or would your words indicate you're on the path of folly? That's the first part. Here's the second part. Number two, he gives us insight for evaluating our leaders. 
So he's going to turn his attention now to another area, another area where a lack of wisdom is absolutely destructive. And he's going to talk about our government leadership. Look at verses 16 and 17. It starts with another contrast. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time. So do you see how he starts? By pronouncing a blessing and a curse. So there's one kind of government that's a blessing to the people under its leadership. And there's another kind of government that brings woe to the people under its leadership. So see how he's expanding? He's been describing the individual walk down the path of wisdom and folly. But now Solomon's saying that nations walk down these same two paths. Depending on its leaders, nations will either go down the path of wisdom and blessing or nations will go down the path of foolishness and cursing. What does the path of cursing look like? He says, woe is the nation that has a child for its king. And what Solomon's talking about here is not, it's not necessarily about age, it's about immaturity. And we know that because Solomon uses this same word of himself. If you think back to 1 Kings when Solomon prays and he asks God to give him wisdom. Do you remember why Solomon says he needs wisdom? He's just become king of Israel. And Solomon says, God, I need wisdom because I am just a child. Okay, but he was 40 years old when he said that. So when Solomon says in 1 Kings that he's a child, he's not talking about his age. He's talking about his competence, his wisdom, his maturity. Well, that's the same thing that Solomon is talking about here. Woe to the nation that has foolish, immature leaders. That's what he's saying. Woe to the nation that is led by adults who act like petulant children. Woe to the nation whose leaders have no fear of God. What do those sorts of leaders do? Solomon says, they feast in the morning. Now, there was a right time for kings to feast. They would regularly have feasts in the evenings. But Solomon is saying that foolish leaders are all about self-indulgence. In other words, foolish leaders, their focus is only on the perks and privileges of the office, but they have no concerns about the responsibilities of the office. Foolish leaders are mainly interested in the benefits they get from the position. So let's get out of bed feasting. Let's just enjoy the perks we can have in this office. But there's no real concern for leading the people well under their authority. And what's sad is the Bible's going to say that's not only the mark of a nation that's led by foolish leaders, that's also the mark of a nation that's under the judgment of God. In Isaiah chapter 3, God declares His judgment on Israel because they've been in rebellion against Him. And listen to how God is going to judge Israel. This is Isaiah chapter 3 verse Four, God says to Israel, this is part of his judgment. I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. Do you see how God's going to judge Israel? He's going to judge Israel by removing wise, noble leaders. They're in rebellion and so as a consequence, God is going to give them foolish, 
immature leaders that are going to bring a, bring a curse on the nation. But on the other hand, verse 17 says, look at what a blessed nation experiences. Blessed is the nation when your king is the son of nobles. The sons of nobles were trained for the office. The idea is blessed is the nation who has leaders who are well equipped for the job. And what do these well-equipped leaders do? Well, whereas the foolish leaders feast in the morning, Solomon says these leaders feast at the proper time. And the idea is, blessed is the nation whose leaders are not self-indulgent. They don't take advantage of their position by feasting all day. These are leaders who show wisdom, they show self-control, they show self-discipline, Leaders like that are a blessing to the nation they lead. Verse 18, this is a parable. Verse 18, I think, is a parable of what foolish leaders result in. Because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. So what happens to a nation when it has foolish leaders? It's like the house starts falling apart. Imagine it this way. Let's say you're at your house this afternoon and it starts raining and you look up and you notice a little wet spot forming on your ceiling. You've got a, a leak in your roof. And you see it and you think, I'll take care of that next week. And next week you think, oh, I'll take care of that next week. And you just, you just keep pushing it off week after week and month after month. What, what happens over time with that little leak? Next thing you know, you look up and your whole ceiling's about to cave in. You, you look up and the roof is about to collapse. Well, that's what Solomon says happens with foolish leaders. They're so busy with their parties and their pet projects that they have no time to take care of the massive leak in the roof. Or think of it, there are so many um, house renovation shows that are on TV all the time. So imagine... Imagine one of those shows on TV, they buy a house, they're going to go in and fix this house, and it's a train wreck. The roof is collapsing, the, the foundation's crumbling, but they don't worry about that. Instead, they go in and they just start putting down new flooring. And they start repainting all the walls while they leave the hole in the roof, and they leave the unstable foundation. That'd be foolishness, right? But that's what Solomon is saying happens with foolish leaders. They, they ignore the big problems. The house of the nation's falling apart, but they ignore, they kick the can down the road on the big problems and just stick up another layer of wallpaper, right? Ignore the, ignore the $31 trillion debt. Here's a nice shiny new stimulus check to look at, right? Ignore what's happening. So the idea here is that it only takes two things to destroy a nation, foolishness and time. Foolish leaders given enough time and the hole in the roof gets big enough that the house collapses. Verse 19. This is, verse 19 seems to be like a, a drinking song. Some think that's what it was. This is what the foolish leaders are saying. Verse 19. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. This is the mantra of foolish leaders. Just enjoy the party. Keep the wine flowing. What about the hole in the roof? Isn't it time for another gala? 
Don't worry about the hole in the roof. It's time to have another banquet. But what about all the problems? Oh, money answers everything. We'll just throw a little more money at the problem and it'll go away. They don't have any solutions. Their solution is we just need more money to throw at the problem. And of course, the problem is government doesn't have means to make money. So where's that money going to come from? Money's going to come from its citizens. Oh, there's problems you see? Well, we just need you to give us more money. We'll just raise taxes a little bit, enough money, and all the problems will go away. I mean, we, this is something we can all relate to. More money does not fix foolish leadership. More money in the hands of foolish leaders just leads to more waste and more self-indulgence. The reason the leak in the roof hasn't been fixed is not because there's not enough money. It's because they don't have the will to fix the leak in the roof. So foolish leaders let the structure fall apart while they continue with their parties. Now here's the last question. So as Christians, what are we supposed to do when we find ourselves in that kind of political environment? What do we do when we find ourselves under foolish leaders? Well, the temptation is, when we find ourselves under foolish leaders, to forget everything Solomon just said in verses 12 through 15. What was 12 through 15 about? It's about making sure we speak wise words. But the tendency is, when we find ourselves under foolish leaders, we just cut our tongues loose. And we curse our leaders and we stick our let's go Brandon bumper stickers on our car. And Solomon is saying that God's people have an obligation to behave a certain way no matter who the leaders are. God's people have an obligation to speak a certain way no matter who the leaders are. God holds you and I accountable for our words regardless of how wise or foolish our leaders may be. So yes, we should boldly, clearly speak against evil policies. Yes, we should do everything we can to keep foolish leaders out of office and to help wise leaders get in office. But my words are to be gracious and seasoned with salt, no matter who the mayor or who the governor or who the president might be. Look at how he says it. This is the warning he gives. Verse 20. Do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich. That's the nobles. Even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Have you ever heard the saying, a little birdie told me? This is the verse that that saying comes from. Solomon has just given another warning about being careful with your speech because you have no idea where those words may end up. And in Solomon's day, if it was found out that you cursed the king, what happened? Did they just remove your, your Facebook profile? No, if they found out you cursed the king, you lost your life. There are still some countries in our world today where it's like that. And Solomon's given a warning... Once you speak those words, words have a way of sprouting wings. And you never know where those words might land. So be careful, especially when there are foolish leaders in power, because foolish leaders tend to be hypersensitive about criticism. And they'll use any power they have to shut down or take out those who speak against them. So Solomon kind of bookends this passage. He starts with a warning about our speech, 
even after talking about government, he comes back to a warning about our speech. So as you sit there and think, yeah, but we have our First Amendment rights. We're American citizens. I can say whatever I want to say. Yes, as an American, you can say whatever you want to say. But as a Christian, you cannot. Because Jesus is Lord of your speech. Jesus doesn't just claim authority over what you believe. Jesus claims authority over what you and I do. Jesus claims authority over what you and I say. And that doesn't just apply to the words I speak. It also applies to the words I tweet and the words I post and the words I text. So make sure you walk the path of wisdom in your speech. And the only way you walk the path of wisdom is in your speech is by walking under the Lordship of Christ. We are called to live our lives every day, every conversation we have, under the fear of God. Feel the weight of God in every conversation. Feel the weight of God in every tweet. Feel the weight of God in every Facebook post. Feel the weight of God in your life. 